and it's just about a perfect time to take a break from Genesis 10 and 11. See, Genesis divides nicely into two parts. Uh, you have four events, creation, the fall, the flood, and then confusion, the Tower of Babel, which is what we'll talk about today. And then after that, you have four men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So today, we end the four events by looking at the Tower of Babel. And as we, end the, as we look at the Tower of Babel, we're forced to compare two things. What the Bible is going to do for us is set up two things. We're going to see a mighty man wielding all the power of man and doing everything a man should do to be powerful and to be great. We're going to see a mighty man. And then we're going to see a mighty God. And we're going to see which one has the better plan and the better idea. And that's really the question today. The question today, how does God want his message shared? How does God want his message shared? Because the Bible is the message of man's redemption. How can we get back into fellowship with God? And God here gives us a taste. He shows us how he wants that message passed along. So we start in chapter 10, and I'm actually not going to read to you because we start with a genealogy. Right. Uh, genealogies are just kind of, you're just going to make fun of me because I can't pronounce the names right. Okay, so we need to understand the importance of genealogies to the ancient Hebrews. Uh, this would have been basically the first thing they asked anyone they met: Who are you? What's your family line? Where are you from? And basically, you stayed with your family line. Uh, and if you were a Jew, not only were you part of the Jew, now it became which tribe do you belong to, and you kind of went to that tribe. Uh, by today's standards, we'd probably almost consider it kind of racist. Um, in fact, it, it would have been racist. There's really no doubt about that. But there's a reason for it, uh, basically because each nation has a purpose. And this is why the story of the Good Samaritan was such a big deal. Because the Samaritan, who's a part of a different tribe, a different group, broke those boundaries to help someone who wasn't one of his own people. Because what we see here is that Jesus tears down these barriers. He makes all of this stuff kind of irrelevant in that which family you're from doesn't matter anymore. Again, we can look at Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He takes these matters and breaks them down. The matter of your family is not necessarily important anymore. Now this genealogy specifically has some interesting, interesting things going on for it. So first, notice that the names of the brothers, Shem, Hem, and Japheth, are reversed. It's always been Shem, Hem, and Japheth. Always been Shem, Hem, and Japheth. That's because that's an order of significance. To the Jewish people, this is their history, this is their book, Shem is the most important. He's where the line of the Jews come from. That's most significant to Jewish history. That makes sense. Ham is the line of the Canaanites. They're Jews' biggest enemies. So that would also be more significant. And then Japheth is kind of everybody else, the Gentiles. But here, let's start with this. The birth order is actually Japheth, Shem, and Ham. But it's always been given Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And here the order is actually reversed significance. So the first one is Japheth, the line of the Gentiles. We can see that in 10.5. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Japheth is just kind of everyone else. 
Now, Ham is a bit more important. Ham has a mighty one. And this is that mighty man that we're going to be set up to see here. Uh, look at verses 8 and 10. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kana, in the end of Shinar, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Razan between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. Again, you're just going to make fun of me for not getting the names right. That's okay. All right. Now, when the Bible calls Nimrod a mighty man, what we have to see that is, is a conquering tyrant. A conquering tyrant, a despot, a, 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 a militaristic dictator who did what he wanted, took what he wanted, and wasn't stoppable. He was unstoppable as far as man goes. He was a conquering tyrant. And what he does is he builds Babylon and Assyria. Those are two most important things because those are enemies to Israel. And as enemies to Israel, he is setting himself as an enemy to God. But what we see with Nimrod is we see man's full might and power on display. Man's full might and full power. He is a leader. He is a conqueror. He is a hunter. All bow to him, and he is the mighty man. And last, finally, you have Shem. And Shem is only given a brief genealogy here because he gets more genealogy later. There's a lot more Shem to come because he's going to be the most important as far as this story goes. Next, notice that in this list of names, there are 70 names. 70 names, or 10 sevens. Seven is the number of completeness, the number of done, the number of finishedness in the Jewish world. So you have 10 sevens, 70 names. Now I've been pointing out some interesting parallels. Here's a few more. There are also 70 people who enter Egypt in Exodus 1.5. There are also... 70 people sent out to teach by Jesus in Luke 10.1. Not sure what to do with that parallel, but it's a curious parallel nonetheless. All right, but, but let's get to the significance of the list of this. Let's get to the significance of this list of names, why these names are important. First of all, it's a reminder that God is in control. Nimrod has taken over. Nimrod is a leader. Nimrod is a mighty man, but he is not in control of all things. No matter how much he wants to be, no matter how much he might think he is, he is not a leader. He is not in control. God is in control. This is a reminder that God is in control. No matter who appears to be in control in our earthly eyes, in our fleshly, worldly, humanly eyes, we have to remind ourselves and we have to know God is in control. Nimrod will not get the final say. God will. Second, what we see here is a shadow of what's to come with Jesus. What we're seeing is that all people are equal. Now, I started this whole thing by talking about racism and how this genealogy breaks people down. That's all true, but realize none of these people actually need to be mentioned at all. This is the Jewish book. This is Jewish history. Shem was really the only one they needed to follow but God gave us this other stuff as well to show that all these other people matter as well. They're important. They're here for a reason. And what we see is that God cares for all of them. 
God wants all people to come to him. It's not just for the Jews. Salvation comes from the Jews, but it's for all people everywhere in the world. God cares for them all. It's simply not the purpose of the Bible to follow all of these people through everything that they do. It's a shadow of the future with Jesus where all are equal. Finally, we should also see in here that every nation has a purpose. Every nation has a purpose. The Jews' purpose is to bring salvation to the world. The Jews' purpose is for Jesus to come through them. But Assyria and Babylon, nations that are enemies to Israel and enemies to God, they also have a purpose. God uses them to correct his people when they need to be corrected. God uses them. So the Bible's focus on Christ does not mean that God does not have compassion for all people. He has compassion for everyone. And that's kind of the first part of my answer today. How does God want his, his message shared? Well, let's think of it like this. God could have chosen Nimrod. He could have. In fact, from our standing, he probably should have. Let me explain, right? I think about my world, my world, the library. When I want something done in the library, who do I go and talk to? A leader of the community, a mover and a shaker, someone who gets something done. I want a mighty man who's going to step up and get something done for me. That's what I want. And so through my limited imagination, through my mind, through my sinful being, I want Nimrod. Nimrod's the man who's going to get something done for me. I'm certainly not going to go ask the homeless person in my bathroom who's taking a shower. I'm not trying to ask him to get anything done for me. That'd be crazy. But hopefully we know the story, and we know that basically, that's who God's going to pick. That's who God's going to pick. God doesn't pick Nimrod. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so why Nimrod is probably, humanly speaking, the better solution, thank, thank goodness, I'm not God. God is in control. God will pick who he wants. And this brings us to the Tower of Babel. Chapter 11, we'll start in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now realize that this tower was likely built during Nimrod's reign. We saw in 1010 that he started in Babel, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So this tower was probably built by Nimrod. And what we see here is the, the problem with human leadership, the problem with human power, because it starts with rebellion. Man refuses to be scattered, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. God had just told them to scatter to go everywhere, to take over and subdue the entire world, and man refuses to do that. They refuse to scatter. In fact, they desire to build a city. They desire to build a city. Now, cities themselves are not evil. Cities themselves are not evil, but it's the intention 
of the city. We can see in verse 4, lest we be scattered about uh, Verse 4, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Does the city, does the building, does the work, does it seek to honor God? Or does it seek to honor man? And what we see is that clearly this tower was meant to glorify man, not to glorify God. This is the difference between the city of Babylon and the city of Jerusalem. Babylon was meant to glorify Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem was meant to glorify God. Cities are not inherently evil, but what people are trying to do with those cities becomes and is evil. We also see that human power stems from pride. Man has a desire to build a name for himself. He wants to glorify himself. A desire to be like God going all the way back to what Satan said to Eve in the garden. Let us be like God. And they intend to use their name, the mighty Nimrod. They intend to use their work, a mighty tower, a great tower, to reach heaven. They're going to use what they have here on earth, what they do here on earth, to get to heaven. But we should have seen, after the flood, and what we should see today, is humility. The realization that we do not build for ourselves. This is not for us. We build God's kingdom. And we specifically, we build the, excuse me, we build the church. We build the church. We don't build for ourselves. We build for him. Instead, or what we see here next, is that God responds with grace. Verses, verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city the tower which the sons of man had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from, their, from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad, over the face of all the earth. God responds with grace. And I keep saying this because it seems like we need to be remembered constantly. God allows the people to live. He allows them to live even though they are disobedient, they are prideful, they are doing exactly what he told them not to do. He allows them to live. Remember, every day we are given is a gift from the Lord. It's a gift. He gives it to us. He has no need to allow us to continue it, to allow us to live. It's a gift that he gives us, and we should be thankful for that, lift because, for that gift because it is pure grace. So what God does is he confuses their language. If they're not going to spread out on their, on their own, then he's going to force them to spread out because God is in control, not man. Now again, we can see some future parallels here. Some interesting parallels. The Tower of Babel parallels with Pentecost. Pentecost. In Babel, God confused all the languages to make people spread out and go all over the place. But at Pentecost, he allowed the, the apostles to speak in tongues so that everyone can hear their own language. He puts all the languages back together to make everyone come back, back under Christ. 
back to Christ. Jesus tears down this barrier. The gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. An amazing amount of work has been done in languages, including the English language, to spread that gospel. It's quite remarkable because Jesus tears down that, that barrier. Babel also, the Tower of Babel also parallels with the end times. The end times, Revelation. The Tower of Babel, what we have here is sin reaching up to the heavens. Man builds a city to get up as high as he can, to get to the earth. They want earth to reach heaven. But in Revelation, God rids the world of sin and he brings a city down from heaven to earth. He brings a city from heaven to earth. God makes heaven on earth. So as opposed to man trying to go up, God comes down. God does the work, not man. Man is not capable of building a tower high enough. God is. Nimrod is a man seeking to be God. Jesus is God seeking to save men. You have some interesting parallels with the Tower of Babel and the end times. And what we see here, the second part of the answer, the second part of the answer is the Tower of Babel is a taste of man's plans against God. I reference Psalm 127.1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. When we fail to walk with the Lord, we build our own towers. And they're not always literal towers. They can be other things. Size of our land, or maybe necessarily the size of our bank accounts, our own name. Any of these own towers to bring ourselves up. And this is the world's plan. This is what the culture tells us to do. As it seeks to ignore God and usurp his authority. We also realize that this is man's plan for salvation. Let's become great enough, big enough, better enough. Let's become so good that we'll be remembered forever and that's how we will live forever. But this is not God's plan. This is not what God wants from man, wants for man. God's plan is different. God's plan is eternal life with him in heaven. And that's where we get... Start next, right? Starting in, chap starting in chapter 11, verse 10, we see God's plan for salvation. And it starts, you guessed it, with another genealogy, all right? What we start to see here, this is the, the, this is the, the line of Shem, his family. And what we start to see is the lives get shorter. Uh, Methuselah lived for about 1,000 years. We're already down to about 200-some years here. We start to see the lives get shorter. But what's interesting is that as opposed to the other genealogy we saw before, closer, closer to the beginning of Genesis, the emphasis here is not on death. The refrain of, and they died, isn't in here. The emphasis is on when they had children, how old the children. And we get to this end of the end of this genealogy, uh, verse 30, uh, but Sari was barren. She had no child. We get Abram and Sari and they had no children. She is barren. So again, we've set up two things. You have the power of people, mighty Nimrod, 
and his great tower, which reaches up to the very heavens. And you've got lowly Abram and Sarah, who, who can't even have kids. I mean, at this point in time, that's, that's basically devastating. No children is basically the end of your line. That's it for you. You're done. But God doesn't look at outward appearances. God doesn't see mighty Nimrod in his great tower. 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And God takes the lowly, he takes the humble, he takes the downtrodden, and he lifts them up, and he makes them great. Here, God takes an elderly couple, an elderly barren couple, an elderly barren couple with nothing and no hope for the future because they can't have kids, don't have kids, will never have kids. And he makes them great. He makes them a nation, mightier and greater and bigger than that tower could have ever been. And because he picks who he picks, Abram and Sarah, Sari, excuse me, Sari, there can be no doubt, no doubt in any way, an elderly, barren couple with nothing, there can be no doubt that this was the work of God. This is the mighty God at work. They could not do it in their own capacity. She was barren, and they were well past the age of having children. And that's where we have to see. Do we see here? Can we see? Can we understand what God is truly doing here? He takes all the great works of man, the great name, the mighty tower, the nation, everything that this man has built, his legacy, the mighty Nimrod, if we can all be the mighty Nimrod. And he takes all of that and he puts it straight in the trash. God doesn't care about that. That's not what God's concerned about. He takes a family. A family. A lowly family. A humble family with nothing. He takes my family. Your family. A family no one would even give a second thought to. And he builds them up. He makes them great. He lifts them. He exalts them. And he builds them into a mighty nation. Again, far mightier than that tower could have ever been. And what we see in the New Testament is that God continues to use the family to bring salvation, but he's changed the definition of the word family. He's simply changed it just a little bit. Just a little bit. Matthew, or Jesus says in Matthew 12, 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Family gets expanded to mean our spiritual family as well. You don't have to have kids to make a difference. You don't have to be a, a, a parent or a grandma or an aunt or an uncle. Not necessarily. You can. You should. Please do. But you don't have to be. You can be a spiritual father and take a young man... As a, as, a, as a mentor, a mentee. You can take someone who doesn't have any family and add them to your family. There are so many people in this world who are hurting because they have no one else. And that's where the church is able to step in. Paul took Timothy and Titus under his wings. Peter had Mark. 
Paul and Barnabas were good friends because that church creates a family as well. That's our job. Of course, if you're a grandparent, go be a spiritual grand, go be a grandparent and teach them about the Lord. But you don't have to be to make a difference in someone's life. You can be a spiritual family as well. You can take someone who doesn't have things, doesn't have those things, and you can build them up as well. God has ordained and assigned us our unique family structure so that we can glorify him. So that we can, be, we can glorify him. So that there can be no doubt, just like with Abram and Sari, no doubt that it is the work of God, not the work of man. And we do this by bringing others to Christ, by building the church, by building the church. You don't have to be married. You don't have to have kids to grow the kingdom of God, to build a great tower. You need to be in God's family. You have to be in God's family. And that's the final answer to the question today. God wants his message spread through family, especially the spiritual family of the church. We work together to do this. He's broken down language. He's broken down race barriers. And he wants everyone to come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, we see that God wants his message spread through family. He has concern for all people. But when we try to build our own towers, it leads only to ruin and downfall. We need to humbly seek to build the kingdom of God. So if you're here today, stuck in the rat race, stuck in trying to build your own tower and preserve your own name, that I encourage you to let it go. Humbly look to the cross of Jesus Christ, confess your sins, and accept the forgiveness and grace Christ offers to all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.